Hello, and welcome to John Nerds Out on Housing Legislation. I'm John Minot, and this is episode three, The Story So Far, part two. I am joined once again by my friend Scott Simmons. Hello, hello. As we get up to date in readiness for the legislative session. As we discovered last episode, there is a lot going on and it is difficult to cover quickly, but we did most of it. And some of the dramas of the, just the last 12 months are going to be pretty important background, maybe not for this year, but for whatever happens next. So I want to give them some of the time they deserve. Let's do it. I'm excited. Before I go to the really recent stuff, I want to go back to something I missed last time, which I think is pretty important, and that is the strides that have been made on tenant protections, Hmm. because that is also an important category. As I mentioned in my first episode, it's something that does not in itself make housing more abundant, but it protects people in need right now, and it makes the overall housing market fairer which we tend to think is a prerequisite to we think it's important. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, can we can we can we go down a small rabbit hole for ten, on tenant protections real quick? Yeah. Yeah, I I would say, you know, I think a lot of times when people talk about houses or think about houses, one of the folks who don't know us or folks who uncharitably are aware of pro-housing folks will often say that the things that we are working towards um, hurt current, uh, you know, at-risk tenants, right? Um, a lot of times, t- it's yeah. even in activism, sometimes it can be difficult to get uh, tenant groups to the table to talk about um, doing work together. Or at least that, that's been my experience. Maybe recently, yeah. up, up in the Bay Area, that's been changing. But there is kind of a tension, or there, or there is a like a perceived tension that I think turns into a real tension between housing and and tenant activism um that you know my two cents i don't think should be there and, and i do think mm-hmm. that the tenant protections are really uh aligned perfectly with the goals of a lot of housing um and i would also include you know transportation activism uh because you're trying to figure out how to both in the short term and in the long term allow people to live in communities stay where they are close to their people and be where they're live, you know, live close to opportunity and live good lives. Um, and I think all that, all that, all of it, all of that is connected. Right. Um, and yeah. for me, I think a lot of the tenant protections really ensure that the folks who are most at risk in the short term, um, are able to achieve those goals as we work towards longer term goals of housing abundance, which, you know, simply by nature of the process and by nature of how long it takes to build stuff is going to be not as much of a short-term goal. Does that make sense? Does that, are you kind of on the same page there? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it gets to a more philosophical sense I have of what the pro-housing movement is and how it can be misunderstood. I think a common shortcut people take is to think of the of people as pro-business or anti-business pro-regulation or anti-regulation totally and when you're and when you're talking about how bad certain regulations zoning are 
And when you're looking to the possibility of private development toward housing abundance, people can take that as shorthand for you are the pro-business faction or you are the anti-regulation faction. That because, and, and in fact, the way I see it, it is a matter of if you believe in regulation in the in the potential of government to make things better you need to be ready for the possibility that regulations can also hurt that yeah. throwing out the bad ones is not the same as rejecting them wholesale as being a libertarian yeah so that's and that's why i think it's very possible to you know support tenant protections and support dismantling zoning and see those as working together because you're making the regulations work for people. You're testing everything and holding on to the good. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it really, I mean, even here, even in the first, what is this, three minutes or five minutes of the thing, it, it really is easy to get in the weeds fast on this stuff. And, yeah, and I think it's yeah. one of the reasons that, one of the reasons that I'm always grateful to have you around and folks like you around. Uh, to kind of unravel the stuff because I mean, it really, even if you're somebody who cares about it, it, it really can get weedsy and just like mm-hmm. too arcane very quickly. Yeah. Um, and but you know, uh, because it sort of needs to, right? These are these are important issues, and uh, you know, one one type of rule doesn't apply everywhere. Well, anyway, I'm going down a rabbit hole there. But yeah, I, w- I wanted to kind of double click on the on the tenant tenant protections thing. Yeah, had that as an important an important piece of the puzzle here for sure. Yeah. And to put meat on the bones of the importance of that cause, the tenant protection bill I want to talk about is something where the pro-housing movement was by and large part of the coalition supporting it. Awesome. So this is what was called the Tenant Protection Act of 2019. And it is still often known by its number, which is AB 1482. And this was in the first year of Gavin Newsom's governorship, but it was something that a lot of people had been seeking for a while. And it was a form of statewide rent control, of reducing how much rent could increase year year by year within certain limits. Now, we we have several cities in California have a level of rent control, but it is really just the biggest cities, although it's growing. Mm Mm-hmm. And usually that is something along the lines of just inflation or just inflation times a factor, and inflation being the consumer price index, which is often two, three, four percent. Recently it was higher, but very briefly. And those kinds of policies are controversial. Uh, a lot of interests fight against them. And it's important to note that the state-level bill was passable in that it was not quite that. It was meant to guard against absurd rent increases, which they ended up defining as inflation plus five points. Hmm. So if inflation is 2%, then under AB 1482, then your rent can grow by 7%. If inflation is 4%, it can grow by 9%. And the absolute cap it can be is 10%, which it did hit recently. Oh, wow. So just to kind of take a step back for my my very sweet mom who might listen to this, when we're talking about uh, uh, rent control and these percentages, we're talking about the percent that a landlord can increase your rent one year after your lease began 
Um, uh, so, you know, it, this is a way of, of making sure that uh, when you, when you rent a place, uh, the, the, the rising value of a, the rental market around you doesn't, doesn't increase uh, dramatically and, you know, cost a whole bunch more and mean, mean that you have to move because, you know, your job hasn't given you a 10% raise every year, that kind of thing. Right. So the idea exactly. is to sort of keep your housing costs under control. Yeah. Yeah. So if you start out at a thousand dollars a month and there's a limitation to 5%, then the next year, the landlord can raise your rent to no more than $1,050. Oh, raise it no more than fifty dollars. So your, two, your rent will yeah, be two. Got yeah, it. buy no more than fifty dollars. Two, no more than a thousand fifty. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And and so okay. So this new uh, AB ten forty eight. Uh, fourteen eighty two. Sorry, <laughs> AB fourteen eighty two. <laughs> Edit that out. Edit out the part where I <laughs> forget the name. No, I'm kidding. Uh, uh, um, uh, what, what high level ten thousand foot view? What what it just uh, created rent control where it didn't exist before, or what did it do? Yes. It created, the shorthand at the time was rent cap, which okay. doesn't really mean anything different. But in practice, it meant that people were starting to get, even if they didn't necessarily believe in rent control, they were getting morally outraged at hearing about people's rent growing in just one year by 15, 20, 25 percent. Mm-hmm, they said, mm-hmm. okay, even if we don't want to limit rent increases year to year too much, it, we can agree that it's unconscionable to raise rent by more than, let's say, 10%. Okay. So that was the consensus at the time. Mm-hmm. And Gavin Newsom, as I recall, did actually come in at the end and throw his weight around for it, which not everyone expected. Wow. Yeah. And it does also create extra protections like just cause eviction, like... Uh, because if the landlord could evict you for any reason, then this would be unenforceable. Right, because they could just evict you when they wanted to raise yeah. the rent. Because then if the law says that I can't raise the rent, then they say, okay, I want to raise the rent by 10%. And the tenant says, no, I know my rights. Then the landlord could just say, okay, you're evicted and I don't have to say why. Right. Okay, so... Uh, because of this bill, landlords can, landlords now have to show cause uh, if they want to evict a tenant. Yes, um, and there is there is some cap on the total amount that can be increased, which I guess we're not calling rent control. It's a rent cap because yes. rent control has a bad PR by now or something. I don't Effectively, know. Effectively, yes. Sure, I'll change the name. Distinguish it. Get the same thing. But uh, there are some big exceptions. Okay. To be clear. Yeah. It does not apply to housing that was built within the past 15 years. The idea is that when new housing is built, that to pay off that investment and make sure that the housing, that there is an incentive to build the housing, that the new landlord is not constrained in what they can do. But then once it turns 15, it's starting to age. It's starting to turn into maybe more middle income housing if things are going well. And then it makes more sense it's almost like from a class point of view that they don't want to raise, they don't want to give too many protections to people who are living in presumably more expensive housing. Sure. Yeah. But there is, there is a market argument for it and choosing the last 15 years is actually an advance on what a lot of cities have, even San Francisco because of 
Costa Hawkins, which I'm going to get into completely separately. Okay. Okay. I want to keep things separate. Um, It does not apply to single family homes unless they are owned by corporations. Okay, sure. And single family homes also includes individually owned condos. Okay. So if I'm a, if I bought my starter condo and then moved Mm -hmm. into a single family home and I'm renting that condo out, I can raise the rent on that condo as much as I want. Yeah. Okay. And there are a number of other exceptions. There's definitely a lot of room for improvement on it. Sure. Hey, but progress is progress. You know, progress is progress. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now there's, this opened up essentially a new front of tenant protections because the old front was fighting for it at the city level. But at the city level, getting rent protections passed by cities is really constrained by another state law that is still on the books that goes back to 1995. Okay. And that is what you hear of as Costa Hawkins, okay. named okay. after the yeah. two legislators who passed it. And Costa Hawkins was 1995. That was a very different time in California. That was a time when we were sort of at a libertarian apex. Mm-hmm. And the bipartisan consensus in the legislature at that time was essentially rent control is a bad idea and we should keep it from growing anywhere it doesn't already exist and we should phase it out over time. Right, sure. And the way that, the big way they implemented that was to say rent control cannot apply to any any housing built after 1995. Okay. In some okay. cities, it's in some cities it's different, uh, but set that aside. In most cities, it's 1995. So basically, setting the law, picking a date, and then as time rolls forward, the uh, the amount of housing stock that will be exempt will increase because the further in the past 1995 is, the more stuff out there has been built. Yes, theoretically. So as written, that problem. would eventually make rent control obsolete because there would be almost no housing left that was subject to it. Yeah. Well. Right. Eventually. Yeah. Eventually, yes. But uh, so that's why I said earlier that making it a 15-year rolling date actually brings some housing under protection that San Francisco could not legally protect. San Francisco can only protect decades-old housing, but this state law protects housing now built as recently as 2009. Oh, wow. So so if something built between 2009 and 95... Mm-hmm. would not have been able to be con- have rent control previously, but now at, yeah. after 2019, uh, it does. That's cool. Yes. That's good. But it didn't change that state law, so it didn't let cities pass anything more. Oh, interesting. So that is, and, and as for that reason, that is still a battle line. So when you've heard in the last uh, few years about rent control initiatives mm-hmm. at the state level that you actually had to vote on, Mm-hmm. That has never been imposing rent control at the state level. It has always been repeal Costa Hawkins and let cities pass whatever rent control they want. Interesting. Yeah. Which can be a little hard sell because it's a little complicated. Right. <laughs> and those have not succeeded to date. So there's a lot of dimensions to rent control. There's what can you achieve at the state level And there's what should cities be allowed to do with their own local authority and their own judgment of the situation on the ground. 
Sure. And the status quo is the cities can't do a lot, unfortunately. What would happen if we did repeal Costa Hawkins? A few cities would start to tighten their rent control. Probably not many, probably just the most progressive ones. Okay. They would probably still put 15 to 20 year rolling dates. Uh, Berkeley actually passed an ordinance of what they wanted rent control to look like if Costa Hawkins were repealed. Okay. And and they ended up with a 20 year rolling date. Okay. And there is also the backstop that if you if you control rent too harshly, you are actually going to get sued in federal court. Oh, interesting. Because and 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 that's another reason that you have the inflation uh the inflation caps is that generally if you if you just keep rents flat, if you say simply no one could increase rent. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. A federal judge is very likely to say this violates the owner's right to a fair rate of return on their investment. Hmm. And don't bother looking for that in the Constitution. It's not there. It is implied. <laughs> <laughs> but the right. federal courts believe it's a right. Uh-huh. And so there, there, there used to be a lot of sparring on these grounds before Costa Hawkins over what exactly cities could pass. Okay. But they could certainly control more recent housing and and at lower annual rates of increase. And and I would guess that the factions that are pu- pushing for Costa Hawkins repeal are the tenants organizations and I would guess the factions pushing against it are basically landlords. Yeah, landlords, that- the big business, the Ch- California Chamber of Commerce, uh realtors, yeah. Real estate investment trusts, those kinds of big Yeah. Uh, Organizations that are making yeah. money off of rent, realtors. Yeah. Wait, why realtors? So. Oh, because oh. it protects like the the rate of return on a purchased property. Yeah. Okay. Part okay, of the value of a home is the val is the amount of rent you can wring out of it, even if got you it. don't, even if you aren't renting it out right now. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. So, there have actually been some improvements to 1482 attempts to attempts to bring the cap down because 10% was noticeable recently uh attempts to make make lower increases but also to make it easier to enforce right now there's there's some difficulty in enforcing it in court it's not as easy as some other rights people have hmm. um the just causes could be limited perhaps right now there's a lot of ability to do for owners to do move in evictions What's a move-in eviction? That's when the owner says, I or my family member wants to move into this unit, and I have the right uh, to do that and evict someone for it. Got it, got it, got it. And in some places, you can do an owner move-in eviction for your second cousin. <laughs> okay. And then they might they might be gone the next month. Right, right. So right. a lot of stuff to figure out. <laughs> right, right. So a lot of weird little loopholes yeah. and edge cases and like w- ways that landlords can still sort of be shady if they want to be. Yeah. Got it. But yeah, there's definitely more to do on tenant protections, but that's where I'll leave it for now. Yeah. Okay. Good stuff. Okay. Okay. So the big other bills I want to talk about to bring us up to date, what really brings us up to date is not that we're upzoning more, although we are, uh, and upzoning again is forcing cities to allow higher density than their current zoning says. Yeah. 
We are doing that. But what has really been illuminated in the last couple of years is the union question. The question of if you were going to build a lot more housing, who is going to build it and will they be union workers? And it's interestingly complicated because most construction labor in the state is not unionized, probably like 90%. Okay. Okay. But the unions are still important and they are still very politically powerful. Sure. Yeah. They tend to focus more on big projects. You know, public works, stadiums, big big apartment buildings sometimes, commercial buildings. Okay. But a lot of the non-unionized are uh, immigrants, are often undocumented. Right. Or d- difficult to unionize. Right, right, right. So as we started to get to more ambitious upzoning bills, as the legislators started to be won over to this cause... Something unions started to demand was what they called skilled and trained provisions. Okay. And that is shorthand for a complicated requirement about the qualifications of workers on the projects. Okay. And what it boils down to is you are not going to meet those qualifications unless you are unionized. In fact, not even all your union members will meet those standards. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. so hang on, wait a second. If if I if I'm a union uh, uh, activist, or if I'm somebody in Sacramento trying to make sure that California laws are good for unions, why wouldn't I just say you have to use union members to build these projects? Why would I create these like requirements? I think it is the most implementable way. I don't. I, okay. I think there could be some legal issues if you literally say they have to be a member of a union. Oh, okay. So these I, are like I haven't actually okay. thought of that, but I think I think that it is a relatively neutral way to achieve that effect. Okay. So, but so, but effectively, what these people are saying is you've you've yeah. got to use union workers. Okay. Yeah, yes. Right. And so there was a bill called uh, the number was AB twenty eleven, and it was submitted by our very own Buffy Wicks from Berkeley. Woo! And it was called the Affordable Housing and High Road. Uh, what was it? Buffy Wicks, very awesome legislator, famously, yes. I think was nursing her child during a critical vote in 2020. I forget when. Yes, she was. She, uh, yeah, she was actually forced to travel to Sacramento while nursing her child for a critical vote, which she had thought she wouldn't have to be present for. Okay, it is called the Affordable Housing and High Road Jobs Act. Okay. The concept was we have all of these commercial strips in California that have a lot of existing jobs that have a lot of commerce and transportation. And often they are underused. Often the malls are dying. Often you have all these shopping centers that could be better used. And so the question goes, why not build housing there? Okay. There are, after all, there are probably more services around there. There's some public transportation, depending where you are. And it allowed, contrary to a city's zoning, it allowed building up several stories for fairly dense housing, 30 to 80 units per acre, as long as it was on a road that was not an interstate that was between 70 and 150 feet wide. Okay. And and it was in a commercial area. 
Okay. 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 So if you're in a part of, part of some town and you know, a lot of California is suburbs, right? So if you're on some part of the suburb, there's a big old road and it used to be a bunch of shops, maybe a mall. You can now put relatively dense. I mean, not like a high rise, but you can put like a three, four story kind of set of buildings there and people can call it home. Yeah. That sounds like a big win. I like that. It was pretty persuasive, but as it was coursing its way through, Uh oh, the State Building and Construction Trades Council was lobbying very hard against it. Or specifically, they wanted the amendment that it would have a skilled and trained provision, that you could not take advantage of this pro- of this special provision of law to build this new housing unless your project also had union labor. Yeah. And what had been noticed over the years, there are some places where this standard exists. And these skilled and trained workers are pretty thin on the ground, especially like out of the, of yeah. Yeah, outside of the major uh, urban areas. And even in there, they tend to be in high demand. You know, they're, they're quite skilled. Yeah. There's, there's projects that need them, projects that have already been unionized. Yeah. And yeah, they're, they're expensive and they take a long time to find. Yeah. Okay. Can, can we go down a rabbit hole about unions here? Yeah. I like unions. I'm a fan of unions. Yes. I'm lefty McLefty pants over here. You know what I like? Weekends. You know who you have to thank for yes. weekends? Freaking unions, right? Yes. I'm a fan. Like, let's get them keep working. If totally we get to agree. a four-day work week, it's going to be because of unions, you know? Yes. And man, am I ready for a four-day work week. Yeah. Um, with the housing stuff, and correct me where I'm wrong here, because I'm sure I don't have the full picture, but with the housing stuff, the the big the big difficulty with unions, or the big difficulty with like just finding the folks who can build this stuff in general is like... In this state, it's been so hard to build housing that like it doesn't make sense for California to have a big pool of skilled labor who can construct homes because most of them would have been out of work for the past, whatever, 40 years, right? Like the rate at which we have been building housing is pretty low, grand scheme of things. So like- Yeah, it, not so much over the last 40 years, but, it, but there was okay. a huge wave of retirements in the Great Recession- uh, okay. You know, 2008 to 2015. And the, okay. the workforce shrunk by like a third. Okay. And in that time, there it's not like there was a whole bunch of opportunity for building new stuff because building new stuff is hard here. And so, you know, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing, right? Like it's yeah. hard to tell the unions, hey, train up a whole bunch more. I don't know, electricians, carpenters, I'm like building these things is so much more complicated than I understand. But like, there's a lot of skilled folks who have to be able to do the thing. And you got to train those people. Like they got to, they got to actually learn. You need people that are interested in doing it and who feel like there is a career if they learn that skill. Right. And given how tenuous and, and, you know, no one knows for sure if in 10 years, we're going to be building a whole bunch more housing, regardless of whether or not nerds like you and me say we should, you know, there's no guarantee that that's going to happen. So like, if you told me, Hey, Scott, come learn this cool and important trade. There's a chance that that might be a good career path in 10 years. I, I probably would say no, I would, I would be like, no, thank you. You know what I mean? So yeah, like yeah. this, this, this issue of like 
you know, so the, and and I I definitely don't want to villainize the unions here. Again, I I love unions, but like it seems in Sacramento, like these folks are doing well. You know, the the, the activists who are pushing on legislation for unions are doing. It sounds like what they're supposed to do, which is make more demand for union labor, right? And given that it's been so thin because of the just slow rate of construction, that I that I have a lot of empathy for that perspective, right? Yeah. But the other side of that is that like if Buffy Wicks is gonna say, Hey, I wanna build a whole bunch of buildings, three, four story places for folks to have their starter condo or whatever, on these like I don't want to call them strodes, but you know, on these like well-served, a high opportunity areas, you know, there's a piece to me that gets a little cranky at the unions because it's like, well, if we only use union labor to build these, we're only going to build a handful of them because there's just not, there literally just aren't enough union laborers to 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 get it done. So, I, I guess a, am I framing am I framing the status quo uh, close to correctly in your view? And then b, if I am. What do we do about it? Yeah, uh, you you have you have stated it really well that this is a difficult question because you can really understand why unions would want, you know, given so many assaults on them, you know, they would yeah. want yeah. to know that they are going to have a place in a future abundant housing world. And yeah, I, I cannot fault them for negotiating for that. But we, I can say that I think that is counterproductive in this in this particular case, that we should try to encourage unions overall. We should try to make it easier for workers to unionize in every workplace, every industry. Yeah. And we should do better by undocumented workers, help them get regularized, help them unionize. Yeah. And and that they are also affected, you know, by the housing crisis. You know, they are also being pushed out into the Central Valley. Yeah, the workers themselves, yeah. Yeah, and that at the moment, to get housing kickstarted into a higher level of production that skilled and trained is not the right way to go. I should say, AB 2011 did not have no labor protections. It did have improvements for labor standards. One was essentially to offer health insurance. Okay. And the other was to offer what's called prevailing wage. Okay. Which is essentially fairly high wages, depends on the locality, depends on the trade. Okay. But it there is it is essentially a regulated higher wage, much higher than minimum wage usually. Okay. 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 But I, w- I would I would guess not as high as what a union uh, member might command. Not necessarily. I think the oh. the I, I'm not actually sure. I know that the prevailing wage concept and definition emerged out of labor work. Out of, it was a standard designed for certain unionized projects or certain federal projects. You know, federal projects pay prevailing wage. That's one of the official standards. I don't know what the distinction, I don't know the differential, Mm. but it may not be as high as that. Mm. Now to your other question of how do we move on from this point? How do we keep it from being just people telling unions, uh, you know, sit down? Right. Yeah. Right. And the answer turned out to be that other unions agreed with us. Okay. And the one that was in the forefront was the carpenters union. 
Okay. I don't know why it's them in particular. Maybe it's their leadership. Maybe it's their position. Maybe it's that they are more looking for new opportunities. Maybe they're not as happy with what they have now. But yeah, the Carpenters Unions came out in front and they supported 2011 without the skilled and trained provision. Wow. And back in 2022, I was actually watching a hearing and watched one of their officials and what he said resonated with me so much, I thought it was so useful that I actually typed it up at the time. Okay. And this was Jay Bradshaw of the NorCal Carpenters Union. And he prefaced his statement saying, the lack of housing production for decades has led to a crisis for the working class. Folks have to move further and further away from the job centers. That's led to a transportation crisis, a childcare affordability crisis, so it's real worker issues that workers face every day rooted in the lack of housing production. When you look at what is needed overall through the state, conservatively 2 million more housing units are needed immediately, over half of those affordable. The production is just not happen happening right now. There's been a bit of a debate going back and forth between these labor standards, meaning the ones in 2011, and skilled and trained labor standards. Uh, he, uh, Jay Bradshaw laid out uh, that the skilled and trained workforce was something like five to 8,000 people statewide versus 800,000 construction workers statewide. Whoa, whoa. He said a workforce in housing overall in California that's 90% non-union. The Carpenters Union strongly supports this bill because those workers are hyper-exploited, driven into the underground economy, and frankly need a raise and a lift up. As a labor organization, statewide, both councils, he meant North and South Carpenters, uh -huh. we are interested in those helps help in those folks helping themselves pull up. And then it's our job as a labor organization to figure out how to organize those folks. And we intend to do that. So get, wow. he said, the provisions get housing production going and create good high-level jobs such that we will welcome these folks into our organization, pull them out of the underground economy. And now here's the thing he said that I think came the closest to shade to the uh, state council. Huh? He said, we are not asking for you to run our organization or create an exclusionary labor standard to do our organizing for us. We intend to take care of that part of it. Uh, his name is Jay Bradshaw. Yeah. Wow. What a hero. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah that that's the kind of like long term system wide thinking that you really you really hope for in your yeah. in your leaders you know and and it, cool. and it goes with a, it goes with a union tradition of elevating the whole workforce at once you know some sometimes labor unions try to negotiate for just their members and sometimes they have trouble seeing benefits come to non members there mm. have been cases from time to time when like there was a minimum wage and some unions wanted exceptions made because they thought it threatened what they had already negotiated but by and large, unions fight for a higher minimum wage for everyone. So they see the need for the working class as a whole to be lifted up, even when the even when they are not the immediate beneficiaries. And so, I think this is solidly part of that tradition. That's awesome. That's so awesome. Yeah. So okay, so so the Carpenters Union in 2019 ish, kind uh, of. This is 2022. 20, oh wow, recently 2022. Yeah. Uh, uh, supports, uh, uh, you know, basically legislation to push more housing production. 
Mm-hmm. And that is, uh, and, and now I, I assume other like trades or other unions were still trying to, you know, op- opposing it until they got concessions or that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, the state council was, and the state council okay. is, you know, a group that organizes all the unions. And the carpenters, I think, were, they may have been kicked out, but I think they were members of that council too. Kicked out because of this? Uh, don't quote me there. I'm, I'm okay. Yeah. <laughs> So but, this, I mean, yeah, this could all—it's it's like an umbrella. It's the state construction building construction trades council is an umbrella group. So that was actually the people doing this organizing, uh, for it. skilled and trained. Yeah. And I want to say, like, between you and me, like you, somebody who keeps up on this stuff very closely, um, you, you know, th- there is also probably some level of like inside baseball happening in San oh, totally. right? There's yeah. got to be. There's always drama and stuff that is just like it's just impossible to know what's going on inside those rooms. Yeah, um, but so, there yeah. were uh, there were a number of articles about the drama as it continued. I think the well, the one re- ones reporting most on it were probably Cal Matters and the L.A. Times. Both amazing organizations, listeners. Yes. If you haven't, you know, subscribed and, and all yes. that kind of stuff, go do that. Um, okay, okay, okay. That's all fun so, stuff. So that was the conflict that was set up, and I should say that the state council, the building trades had their own sort of upzoning bill at the same time countering 2011 or as the alternative. It required skilled and trained. It applied in commercials areas. It sort of upzoned, but it was all discretionary. They don't really have the perspective of looking for housing that is difficult for a city to deny. Anyway, I'm not going to get into too much of that. They had their own bill. It did uh-huh. something similar. It had skilled and trained provisions. But it was weaker. Yes, in my opinion. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Neither side backed down. And what ended up happening was it seems like everyone felt really exhausted and said, look, let's just pass them both. And maybe maybe one of them will be more productive than the other, and maybe we'll get an idea. Okay. Interesting. So that was the compromise that year in 2022. The compromise was just pass them both? Yes. Okay. How'd that go? Well, they don't conflict with each other. They're just different avenues a developer could take. Well, but wait a second. If if one of them is is uh, it's it sounds to me like the Buffy Wicks one, uh, would would be would be easier. Like if it's if it's yes. less discretionary, is that wrong? I have not looked to see in what circumstances someone might want to use the other bill SB six when that would get you more benefit than twenty eleven. Oh, but there's a, okay. Yeah. So, but hey, there could be some edge case where it does, and in which case, yeah. I guess somebody would try to use that instead. Maybe, yeah. I think it was more okay. of a, it was more of a result of negotiations than anything else. It was just they were beating against each other, and someone said, someone, someone high up, I suppose, said, "Look, this is silly. Let's just pass them both. They both seem okay." Okay. Okay. So wait a second. If if yeah. if my if my eyes just like <laughs> you know <laughs> glossed over there, yeah. from in your you, from your perspective, uh, for these two bills, do you think there's a decent chance that we're going to start seeing this kind of construction on these wide roads where you've got like a mall or a shopping center? Do you think it's going to start happening, or is there something else that kind of well, needs we're to be paying solved? attention. It still had affordable requirements. It requires usually at least 15% affordable. And the trouble is they also delayed its implementation to July 2023. Okay. 
And at that point, we had interest rates kicking in. We had some other things where a lot of projects are choking off. So I'm not sure how how much has been uh, how much has been using it. So the economy hasn't been quite right to see no. if it's really going to fire up. Or yeah, it's really although I, I have not actually checked. It. There may have been in the past eight months more may have come. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But the negotiating result was interesting because it was not really settling the agreement. It was not deciding on a compromise between the two. It was just sort of saying, oh, gods, just get, get me out of this room. <laughs> I mean, you know, from my perspective, as somebody who wants to see more housing built, yeah. uh, I'm fine with that. Oh, yeah, right? Yeah. Like giving folks more options, giving somebody who wants to build housing on some piece mm-hmm. of land somewhere giving them more avenues to make the paperwork say it's okay to build. That to me sounds like a good thing, right? I mean, I know that's a very crude approximation, but yeah. yeah. But the fact that that didn't really resolve the disagreement came back to bite everyone the following year in 2023. And so that brings me to SB 423. Okay. So don't worry, this is the last big one. So SB 423 is the extension of SB 35. And that was the one that we talked about last time, which streamlined affordable housing. Yeah. In cities that have not built enough housing. Yeah. If you don't build enough housing for X number of years, it's going to be somebody can just say, hey, I'm going to use SB 35 and you can't stop them. They're going to build their affordable housing and there's not a whole lot you can do to slow down. If it's within the zoning. Yes. Yeah. So now that I've explained skilled and trade, I can circle back to SB 35 and explain a bit of a defect that turned out with SB 35. Ah, okay. So SB 35 was supposed to allow 100% affordable housing, and depending on how bad the city was at getting housing built, as little as 10% affordable. Okay, so not a whole lot. 10% is... Yeah. Yeah, not a lot. Okay. In some cases, 50, some cases, 10. Okay. But even back then, at that time, and I think it was 2017, the labor, the trades came in and said, we we need skilled and trained as a requirement here. For SB 35? SB 35. Okay, yeah. And the at that time, the, they were a lot more powerful, frankly, and they mostly got that in. Okay. With the exception that the at the end of the negotiations, SB 35 said, if you are going to build 100% affordable using this law, then you don't need skilled and trained workforce. You can use a non-union workforce. Okay. If you build and- anything other than uh, anything less than 100% affordable, skilled and trained. So okay. what happened was because it is so expensive and so uh, hard to find, almost all the projects using SB 35 were actually 100% affordable. Wow. Okay, wait, hold on. Do, yeah. Zooming out a little bit for my very sweet mother who's going to listen to this. When we say a project is 10% affordable or 50% affordable or 100% affordable, we're talking about the percent of homes yes. in the building yes. that are basically subsidized by some me- mechanism or another, which is to They're say- subsidized usually by all the other ones. So the 10% are subsidized by the 90% that are market rate. 
if it's right. 100% affordable, then you need subsidy from somewhere else, a bunch of grants or taxes or tax credits. Yeah. yeah. So you're making, you're basically, yeah, awesome. So you're making this building and the folks uh, at a, if it's a 100% affordable building, the folks who are going to come and apply to rent at this place are people who are going to prove that they earn only a certain amount of income. These are folks mm-hmm. who are, who are struggling a little more, um, mm-hmm. not as much income or other, other hardships. And, and there's yep. a whole lot of process and paperwork like there is with any yep. kind of rental thing, but more, and it'll make sure that those folks who really need it can move in and can, and their rent is going to be lower, sometimes substantially lower than yeah. what the like local quote unquote market rate would be. Yeah. Um, it's lower than market rate. It's much lower than market rate. That doesn't mean it's something anyone can afford. Right. And do, oh, yeah. That, that is <laughs> a reasonable is thing a... to be, to, to a reasonable thing to be dissatisfied about, but that's a longer issue. So maybe let's come back yeah. to that some other time. Yeah. That's a different rabbit hole for sure. For sure. But in general, it's going to be more affordable less expensive yeah. than market rate stuff. So, okay. SB 35, this law that got passed uh, five years ago, which is forever in housing timelines, but uh, you're saying most of these got built as 100% affordable because the folks building it didn't have to use skilled and trained that this labor requirement. So basically it made it more affordable for them to build it, or maybe even they could get it built because they didn't have to wait for those union workers who who met those skilled and trade yeah. skilled and trained sorry requirements yeah. so so basically so do you do you think it was a cost thing or do you think it was like a we just couldn't get it built because those laborers weren't available you know what i mean i think it's both because you know time yeah. is money yeah fair fair fair, fair. It'll probably cost more because they would have looked at the beginning how much is it going to cost even in ideal circumstances to hire these workers and I don't think, by the way, that projects got pushed into being 100% affordable. I think that all the projects that weren't 100% affordable simply didn't happen. Oh, got it. So the ones that succeeded were the 100% affordable. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Can, can I ask a sort of off-the-wall question about this, about the skilled and trade thing, trained thing again? Yeah. Do, do you think, like, if I'm somebody who just wants to rent a place and I just want it to be well-made... Like I want, you know, I want the plumbing to work and I want that there's a crack and this is my apartment is old, but there's a crack in the wall over there because there was an earthquake recently. And I was like, did that crack just get bigger? Whatever. You know, <laughs> do you, do you think that if you, if you were using union and you're using skilled, skilled and trained labor that you are coming out with a product that is better? By and large, yes. I think that okay. your union labor is going to know more, is going to have more experience, is going to have more training from their peers, not just picking stuff up on the job or from their trade schools. Yes, I I think that you do get a benefit from getting union labor. You you might do the work slower, but you might do it much better. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, awesome. That said, that doesn't necessarily make, that doesn't necessarily make the project pencil at the start. Fair pencil meaning it's oh, got to You got to make money work on out, it otherwise. Work out yeah. from from a biz from a profit and loss point of view. Yeah. How, would you, uh, okay. Another another if I may another small rabbit hole, and I'm gonna I'm gonna get this wrong. But didn't Scott Weiner at some point try, Senator Scott Weiner from San Francisco, mm-hmm. uh, 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 notorious housing senator, uh, didn't he try and pass something where there was a requirement for for union labor projects, there was some rule that said you have to be training up more people. 
when you build this kind of project. You, am I making that up? You know what I'm talking about? If anyone would know this off the top of their head, it's, it's you. <laughs> I think someone knows it, and it might not be me. Uh, <laughs> but there was actually, well, no. Well, actually, going back to 2011, there was a small requirement for for projects under AB 2011 to, I think, have apprentices from these programs. Mm, right, yeah. Yeah, that was another thing alongside the prevailing wage. I don't know how much it moves the needle. And there was something about, like, they request apprentices, but maybe they aren't going to get them. And if they mm. if they ask for them and don't get them, then they can move forward, something like that. But yeah. there may be something else. Yeah, but I think it, it makes sense to simultaneously try to build up the skilled and trained workforce because it is a good workforce. Yeah, yeah, like that's the you, you want to have it's it. that chicken and egg thing. Yeah, it's yeah. it's a tough nut to crack though, right? Because how yeah. how do you how do you incentivize or or how do you get unions to trade up train up more skilled people when mm-hmm. again you know it's it's not even really clear that there's going to be enough work for um, all the skilled people they have right now. Although I, I guess there is if if we're seeing these if we're seeing SB thirty five projects going up. And it's only the ones that can avoid the skilled and trained labor clause mm. that seems to indicate that there is more work than the these unions can do. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway. Okay. Well, sure. So SB 423 was the new bill in 2023. Okay. And part of the reason we needed it was SB 35 actually had a ticking clock. It was going to expire in 2026. Ah, so it needed an expiration bill. So 423 made it permanent, and it did a lot. It did some other little tweaks, but the biggest thing it did was simply to take those 2011 labor standards of prevailing wage, health insurance, and apprentices, okay, and make that the new standard for SB 35. Take away the skilled and trained projects. You're right. So you could build 10 or 20% affordable projects without union labor. Oh. Yeah. Okay. And were the were the trades were the unions on board for that bill? No, and that's where okay. the okay. lack of lack of closure to the previous year's negotiations came back to bite them because oh, I think the, the proponents okay. thought okay, the trade sort of backed down here. So we're going to pass this and it's going to look like 2011. And because they allowed 2011 to pass, they might be grumpy about it, but they'll allow this to pass. Turned out, no, they opposed this even harder. Oh, okay. And it was a bit of a battle royale. And the thing was, though, what happened this year was the carpenters started peeling off more pe- more unions to their side. The laborers, the operating engineers, who are members of the State Building Trades Council, they started coming around and supporting 423 because this was starting to make sense to them too. And they were starting to wonder, in my opinion, as an outsider, they were starting to wonder why the, the trades were so dead set on this. Wow. So there's, I mean, there's got to be some inside baseball politics oh, totally. stuff happening there. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. And the short story is they backed down. The the carpenters did or the trade unions? No, the did? building trades. Wow. Okay. So 423 the, passed. 423 passed. 
and it continued to take out the skilled and trained requirement. They did come to an agreement where there was some compromise where skilled and trained is required in some circumstances. Okay. And it's basically, if the building is going over a certain height, I think it was 85 feet, I should have that, but it, it's a height that allows a lot. You know, yeah. most, of, most of the projects you're going to get are going to be six to seven stories, Yeah. so they're not going to trigger this. And then even if it does, if you get over that height limit, then it just says you have to try to get a skilled and trained workforce. You have to show that you looked for it. And then if, if you don't get enough bids, then you can go ahead with non-union. Okay. I mean- So it was really pretty reasonable, in my opinion. Yeah, that sounds- It, it let them save face, but it still means that the vast majority of these projects are going to be non-union, but with a chance for- them to become union huh so so we're seeing so we're seeing a big shift okay unions yeah so we're, we're seeing a shift in where unions are applying their political pressure yeah in sacramento mm-hmm. do you think hmm i mean if, if i'm if i'm if i'm a political co- coalition and i've got sort of like dissension among the various groups in general to me that feels like I mean, I guess what I'm worried here about here is, are we seeing a weakening of unions? Are we seeing this like lack of solidarity among the unions? Is that is that going to lead to, I don't know, other potential legislative problems or like, I you know what I mean? Too, too early to say. Uh, hmm. I think that, you know, the lack of uh, the lack of housing is extremely anti-union. <laughs> you know, it forces lower income people out of the state. Yeah, that's real. To, to places with much worse labor protections. Yeah, so, yeah, that's real. I think that that's real. getting housing back on track is part of making the economy work for regular people, which yeah. is part of what unions are fighting for. And yeah, I mean, man, to, to, to zoom kind of way out, we need that in California. Like, right, we've got, we've, we're seeing, we're seeing population decrease in California, right? We're seeing people leave for other places. Yeah. We're, we, and, we're losing con- congressional districts to Texas and Florida. Yeah. And it's it's not like people are excited to move to, to Texas no. and Florida. You know, people want to live here. This is a great place. We've got a lot yeah. of cool stuff. We've got a lot of cool people. Um, yeah. California, I, you know, it's I think it's a wonderful problem to have, but it is a problem. It's a, it's a great, great, great place to be. There's so much opportunity. There's so much diversity. Whatever your particular kind of culture is you can find it somewhere in california yep the only question is can you find a place to call home when you get here you know yeah anyway and actually that brings me to another great thing that happened with sb 423 okay a completely different political dragon that it slew before the renewal in sb 423 its predecessor sb 35 did not apply to the california coastal zone Really? Yes. And let's back up here because I'm sure most people don't know exactly what that is. The California California Coastal Zone is an area usually pretty close to the coast. There is an official map. It's, yeah, it varies. It depends where you are, but it's around the coast. Yeah. And it is under the extra jurisdiction of the California Coastal Commission. Right, which was right. originally set up essentially to protect the coast 
to make sure it was accessible to everyone to protect its environment. But the Coastal Commission has also become a great NIMBY defender. Yeah, of course it has. So we're talking about even places like, you know, places that are built up cities that are on the coast. They have been protected largely from upzoning by the coastal interests who say that it is uh, hurting the coast to let more people live there. Yeah. Well, Santa Monica, near and dear to my heart, where I am right now, maybe in a future episode, I would love to talk about the builder's remedy because that's been Mm. a thing that has been happening in Santa Monica because prior to that, there really hasn't been a whole lot of stuff happening, which I think is at least in part due to the Coastal Commission, although I can't say that for certain, but yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so there have been some victories, but there is still a lot of conflict to be had out there. And you can see you can see the conversation changing with regard to skilled and trained comparing what happened in 2017 with the early Scott Wiener bill to what happened in 2023. And it will be really interesting to see how much more productive the SB 423 becomes compared to its predecessor. Yeah. We'll see in the next few years if it if it really yeah. if 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 it yeah. makes a big difference and yeah. then the economy doesn't totally tank, yeah. we might just see a whole bunch more stuff go up because of that. That'd be great. Yeah. yeah, but you know there are there are those voices that say that even bills like AB twenty eleven are not as effective as they could be because they are loading too much cost onto projects. Hmm. Because 2011 not only requires prevailing wage, as I said, it also requires a minimum of 15% restricted affordable. Hmm. And those two things put together mean that the project has to make a lot of money to finance those costs. Which means the rent needs to be really high. Yeah. And it needs to be able to command those rents, which may not be the case. You may not get the projects necessarily. And often they have to pay major fees to the city per unit for it, for the privilege of building. We should do a whole episode sometime, just like walking through the life cycle of trying to get something Mm. built. Like just just like like take a theoretical building built Mm -hmm. in, you know, any town, California, San, any town, California, and just just walk through the timeline of what happens between somebody decides they want to build something there to it actually the first renter moves in, you know, because there are just so many weird things in there. And I I know I don't even know all of them, but like there are so many dials to turn and things that can go wrong and and difficult things, like things that just make it hard to build housing in this state and maybe anywhere, but certainly in California. But yeah, I think we've come more or less up to date. So I am now combing through the bills that have been submitted in 2024 I don't know if there will be as big dramatic ones as there have been last year, but I know there will be some things that we can talk yeah. about. I look forward to it. Yeah. Um, well, and yeah, so if much you, again if you... for joining me. Oh my gosh. It's a pleasure as always. Anytime, anytime, man, anytime. I'm so happy to hop on these calls and, and, and nerd out with you on this stuff. And yeah, if you want to, I would, I bet folks would love to hear your take on builder's remedy. Um, mm-hmm. 
and yeah, if we want to do like a an imaginary ha- a project, uh, I bet it would be illuminating to a lot of folks to understand um, how one of those things, you know, like, like that old cartoon about how a bill gets passed, the schoolhouse rock kind of thing, but <laughs> that for for how buildings get, get built, because uh, it's bananas. It's wild. Yep. Okay. Well, thanks so much again. And yeah, next week will almost certainly be some of the early bills that have caught my eye. Awesome. And until then, keep on learning. <laughs>